we will be reading from verse 18 through the end of the chapter. Hebrews 12:18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, Once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicates the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. You can be seated. Will you join me in and sing that uh, chorus again with me as we prepare to uh, look at God's word? Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your goodness. You're our Father who is in heaven. In this day, I pray that we would hallow your name, that we would look forward to your kingdom coming. I pray that we come to see you in these days ahead as you are, holy and mighty, worthy to be praised, not just on Sunday morning. I pray that we recognize in our days the power of your name. May our lives be aligned under the care of your kindness and your severity. Help us to see that every good gift comes from you. And remind us through your disciplinary hand that goodness is not predicated on what we deem to be always good. The scripture says that you are good 
and you do good. That's who you are. You are always loving. You're always faithful. I pray that our trust gets placed in you alone. Father, I ask that you would open your word to us all today. Give us ears to hear. Give us a spirit of attentiveness this morning to the truths that you would desire to teach us. Pray that you would move our steps to run this race of faith that's before us. This race may be deemed a marathon requiring endurance, but the Bible also tells us that life is a mist, it's a breath, it's a vapor, a short sprint on the timeline of eternity. So, Father, we pray that we would run with endurance all the way to the end, trusting you every step of the way. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our forerunner and leader and pioneer. Amen. The best we could do this morning is get the board lit up. You may have noticed when you came in, there's a scoreboard that is lit up this morning. And that'll do for what I want to present to you as we jump into the text. If we had the availability and the opportunity to set that at 15 seconds, 10 seconds, to start it and to see it click down, if we were to be silent for those 10 or 15 seconds, we could actually hear the clicking of the board. And once it reaches zero, then we would also be able to hear, anybody know what we would hear? A buzzer, a horn, sounding that it's done, it's over. You know, we've been instructed here in Hebrews 12 to run the race. And in many ways, the clock is is ticking on life, isn't it? And you can look to the scoreboard and you can actually see how much time is left in a game. But the race of faith has no visual to it. You can't see when the horn is going to sound in life. You, you feel the effects of the race, that it's winding down. Some of us feel the effects of that more than others, don't we? But the actual time or date, no one knows except our Heavenly Father. We've been called to run a race here in Hebrews 12. We've been called in on this race. Others have run the race before us. And now we too have been called to run as a church. We're called to be participants in this race. We're called to run together. And we've been instructed to run looking unto Jesus. We've been called to run considering Jesus, thinking much of him. We've been called to run listening to what Jesus has to say. And that's really where we begin things here in verse 25. God speaks to us in these last days through his son. 
See, the race of faith is deemed a marathon, an endurance race. But don't allow the long-distance metaphor to fool you. No one here is guaranteed another day. Not a one of us. The race that we're called to run by faith is coming to an end at some point here on earth. These bodies that we've been given, these earthen tents, they're breaking down, aren't they? We feel the effects of our bodies breaking down quite regularly. The clock is ticking. If I had a, another visual that would have been wonderful here is to have just a, a giant, you can picture this for me, a giant uh, hourglass. You know what an hourglass is, right? Maybe you've uh, used one in a, uh, there's various games that you can have an hourglass where you have a time limit on something. And you turn the, 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 the hourglass over and the sand goes from the top down to the bottom in the hourglass. The sand is going to empty out one day. And the race is going to be all over for you. Then what? Hebrews 9.27 And as it is appointed for men to die, how many times we die? Once. But after this, the judgment. After this, the what? The judgment. Who's the judge, church? God. God's the judge. And yet the judge of all has handed things over to his son, hasn't he? In John chapter 5, verse 22, says, Jesus says, The father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son. That's important. All judgment's been committed to the Son. By what means is Jesus, the Son, judging? Well, we look at Paul's account when he's in Athens in Acts 17, and we read these two verses that are very instructive for us in 30 and 31. And he's saying God commands all men everywhere. Those are three important words. All men everywhere. To what? Repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will, here it is, judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And he's given assurance of all this by raising him from the dead, Paul says. I want you to notice from these two verses that God has commanded all men everywhere to repent, to turn from their sins because a day of judgment is coming. Jesus, the righteous one, has been appointed by his Father to judge. Any questions about Jesus' appointment to the place of judge are directed to the empty tomb. I love that. He's given assurance 
to all that his son is the man he's ordained to carry out the judgment. And the basis for such judgment is the fact that he raised Jesus from the dead. So the Bible speaks of a judge, a righteous judge, an impartial judge, a holy judge. His judgment is just. If the judge is judging based upon a standard of righteousness, you might be wondering to yourself, how then might I obtain this righteousness? If this is the standard, how do I obtain such a righteousness? If that's what I'm going to be judged by, it's sort of like someone who's studying for a test. When you're studying for a test and you've got an exam coming up, it's important that you know what's going to be on the exam. You want to know what I needed to study. Why is it then when we know that judgment is coming? It's appointed for men to die once and then the judgment. How many people seem not to care at all about the judgment to come, about the standard by which the judge is going to judge? Paul explains two kinds of righteousness in Philippians 3. One kind of his own making, which was carried out through the law. And another kind of righteousness from God, apart from the law, granted only through faith in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 also gives us some wonderful instruction on how we obtain this righteousness. Paul says, for he, that's God, he made him, that's Jesus... Who knew no sin, perfect spotless lamb. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That's substitutionary atonement. And here's the why. Here's what's on the other end of it. That we might become the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. God did that for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. The only way we become the righteousness of God, listen very clearly, is through Christ Jesus. In Christ alone we sing. That's just so true and so eternally significant. God sends his son to remedy our sin problem, the very thing that's keeping us at a distance from a holy God. He sends his son to take our sin upon himself, listen to the why again, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. It's an amazing exchange, church. He took our sins and we now have the right to become a child of God, fellow heirs with Christ. Come judgment day, you want to be covered by the blood of the Lamb. Amen? You, you want to be covered by the blood of the Lamb. You want to have this righteousness imputed to you through Christ's death on the cross. You want to be found in Jesus. You want to be in Christ. The clock is ticking. And the horn is going to sound for each one of you. Are you going to be ready to stand before the judge of all men? Will he see righteousness of your own making, which, by the way, deemed filthy rags? 
or a righteousness that comes only through the finished work of Christ at the cross. Acts 4.12 says there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. Jesus. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. John 14, 6, one of the most exclusive claims in all of Scripture. No man comes to the Father except through me, Jesus says. A lot of people in our world today don't like that verse. They, don't, they, want, to, they want to just tear John 14, 6 out of the Scripture. Ephesians 2, 13 says that we who once were far off, we've been brought near, how? By what means? By the blood of the Lamb. Corinthians 6, Paul instructs us on this body that we've been given. And he says, you've been bought with a price. He made us and he remade us. He bought us. He created us. He redeemed us. Acts 26, 20, Paul gives his summary of the Mediterranean as he traveled. These three things. Repent. Turn to God in faith. Do works befitting a life of repentance. The invitation is given right now, friends. Right now, right up front, right in the beginning. I'm calling you to, to wake up in light of the fact that Christ is available right now. Today, Hebrews has already talked about this. Today is the day of salvation. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Listen, a refusal to hear Jesus is a refusal of eternal proportions. You're not going to listen to Jesus? I want you to know this morning, it has eternal implications. If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, turn to Hebrews 12, verse 25. That's where we begin. That's where we left off last week. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. It has an ongoing idea. Uh, be seeing to it. Keep on seeing to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. Listen, the God of the scriptures is a God who speaks. Do we know that this morning? The God of the scriptures is a God who speaks. He spoke in times past. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 says, By the prophets. But he speaks in these last days, Hebrews chapter 1 says, verse 2, he speaks now through his son. He speaks now to us through his revealed word. He speaks now to us through the promised Holy Spirit who dwells within us. He's still speaking. 
calling people unto himself. Listen, God is speaking not to just be talking. God doesn't just talk just because he just doesn't have anybody else to talk to, so he's just going to talk and, and fill space with words. He has something to say. And he's God. Let's remember, he's God. I mean, how foolish of us. Think about it. As clay jars, to think that we can wave off what God the potter has to say. We can wave him off. You know, I was reminded of this. There's this interesting exchange in the game of baseball between the pitcher and the catcher. And the catcher is, is squatting. He's got all this gear on, his equipment on. And if you notice, those of you that have played or understand the game a little bit, you know that the catcher is giving a signal to the pitcher on the mound. And oftentimes it's a, it's a, it's a number, one, two, three, four. And those numbers represent a certain pitch that he wants the pitcher to throw. For example, one might be, I want you to throw a fastball on this next pitch. A two might be a curveball. A three might be a slider. A four might be a changeup. You get the idea. Whatever number, that's the one he wants the pitcher to throw. But if you, if you notice and you're watching the game, sometimes the camera will give a close-up of the pitcher. And you notice the pitcher and he's standing there and it's like he's studying a manual. He's looking at the catcher. He's trying to get the signal from the catcher of what pitch to throw. And when the catcher gives the signal, a lot of times that pitcher's standing there and he's looking intently and he goes. And the catcher gives him another one. And the pitcher goes. And this might go on for some time until the catcher might call time out and he might go up there and have a conference and, and they might have a little dialogue about, hey, what's going on? How often do we treat God's word like that? I, 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 you know, go back to the baseball. I, I, the pitcher, I don't want to throw that pitch. I've got a pitch that's going to be a better one. I've got a better idea. How often do we treat God's word in the very same way? How often does God find his own children shaking their heads at him, saying, no, 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 Lord, I'm going in a different direction. I've got something better in mind. Think about the absurdity of waving off the God of heaven. He's spoken through his son. And yet how often do we treat his words as a mere play call option? God doesn't give us his word of instruction as an option. He's not looking for our input on this. He doesn't need our help to get the right play call. He knows it. He's God. He's speaking. And it's our responsibility to take his word and receive willingly what he has to say. See that you do not refuse, decline, avoid, reject him who speaks. 
Let's get really clear on this. The one who speaks is God. Why would you ever choose to decline his speaking invitation? Think about it. Why would we ever refuse what he has spoken? For those considering the refusal of the God who speaks, the writer goes on to argue from history that this is not a good idea. For if they did not escape, who refused him who spoke, past tense, on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks, present tense, from heaven. What we have here is an argument from the lesser to the greater. If they, speaking back to the Jews in the Exodus, he's already brought this up in part in Hebrews 3 and 4, remember? Hebrews 3 and 4, the ones who failed to enter God's rest due to unbelief. If they did not escape judgment, how much more shall we not escape judgment? He spoke on earth from the mountain. Remember Sinai? He's speaking now through his son, Jesus. It's like the writer is saying, what a tragedy it would be if you missed this. Learn from history's mistakes. Take heed to what God is saying through his son. That's the message. There's a group of people who didn't listen. In fact, they refused him who spoke. And it, listen, listen, everybody listen to this. It cost them their lives. None, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, entered the promised land. A whole generation wiped out due to what? Unbelief. Not listening to him who speaks. If God addressed the sins of the people back then, this is important for us to get. Is he not going to address sin even more now with Jesus having already come, Jesus already having died, Jesus already having been buried, Jesus already having been raised, having already been ascended, Don't you think, for just one moment, please, I hope no one thinks this. Don't think that the God of heaven is going to bypass your unbelief today. Sin is always going to be addressed by a holy God. He's not going to tolerate it. His voice of words... Going back to verse 19. His voice of words then shook the earth. Says here in verse 26. But now he has promised. Saying. And and what comes next is a a quote from Haggai the prophet. Chapter 2 verse 6. 
And he says, yet once more, those are three key words, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. That's pretty extreme. Not only the earth, but heaven. That's major shaking. Verse 27 follows up and gives us more definition. Sheds light on the Haggai quote. He says, now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Yet once more speaks of one more time. A finale is coming. God has promised through his prophet Haggai that one more time he's going to bring about a shaking. Keep in mind Haggai is writing long before Christ comes to earth. He's talking about it. He's talking about what's going to happen. He's given us fair warning. And the shaking is going to impact not only the earth, the days at Sinai, the mountain trembled, that place was shaking. And the writer here is saying, you remember that. You remember hearing about that. You remember what that was about. And I'm telling you that what's, hap- what's happening in these days ahead is going to be something just to the nth degree greater than, than Sinai shaking. What are the things that are going to be shaken? The text says the things that are made. Didn't God make the world around us? Why then would he shake his own created habitation. Why would he do that? Or maybe we could say it this way. God spoke these things into being, didn't he? If God's the one who created them, doesn't God have the power to also get rid of them and remove them? What's the writer pointing to as he explains this shaking yet to come? As he explains the yet once more from Haggai, he brings forward a purpose clause at the end of 27. That the things which cannot be shaken may remain. In other words, his created world which he put in place and spoke into existence, he's going to shake the earth and heaven one day. And on that day, what will become apparent is this. The things that remain are the eternal things. The things that are removed are temporary things. Did you get that? There are eternal things. There are temporary things. The highlight in the text is on the promise of God. He's going to shake something greater than Mount Sinai here. We better listen to what he has to say. 
And the shaking that's promised is going to impact heaven and earth. Things are passing away. That's what John says in 1 John. Remember that? 1 John 2, verse 17. The world and the lust of it are passing away. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Forever. This is why John calls his listener to forego chasing the temporary pleasures of this world. It's going to be removed. It's going to be shaken. It's not going to be here long term. Why then would you spend your energies investing in a kingdom that is subject to be shaken? Why don't you instead invest in heavenly treasures? Why not seek first His kingdom? A kingdom that's going to pay long-term eternal dividends. If your treasure is where your heart is, I want to ask you this morning... Where is your heart? What's it set on? Is it set on that which is passing away? The myriad of things that are going to be shaken and removed? The warning is being issued. The clock is ticking. The horn is going to sound. And once it does, there's judgment. What has your life Revealed about the treasures you seek. I believe to this point the writer has taught us two primary things. Here's the first one. We cannot escape the judgment of God if we choose to refuse Him who speaks. We can't escape. Don't think for a moment you can escape. You're not, you're not so highly intelligent that you can figure this out and dupe the God of heaven. Can't be done. You can't escape. Secondly, if we choose to refuse him who speaks, we are opting then essentially to spend our days investing in fool's gold. You know what fool's gold is? The things of this earth may look really nice right now. That Powerball jackpot might look really good. Tempting, the boat, the dream house, the nice car. It's part of the stuff that's going to get shaken, friends. Peter in his epistle writes about these things being burned up. (laughs) Going to be burned up. They're going to be gone. They're going to be removed. Don't invest in a house of cards. It's going to fall. Sort of like building your life on sand. Jesus says when you do that, you're you're deemed a what? A fool. Listen to what he's promised. And prepare yourself for eternity. How much of our lives are spent preparing for the next assignment? the next quiz, the next business meeting, the next game, the next house repair. How much of our lives really get invested in heavenly things? How much preparation goes on here for what's going to remain? When that yet once more happens and the earth and heaven are replaced 
with a new earth and a new heaven, where is that going to find us? See, the writer wants to bring, I believe, this assurance of the things yet to come in Christ. And he concludes the chapter with yet another exhortation. And the exhortation is closely followed by a resounding warning which is rooted in the very character and nature of God himself. Therefore, verse 28, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace. We've sung about grace. We're called here, exhorted to have grace. We are receiving an unshakable kingdom. That's passive in rendering, which means we've not done anything to deserve or merit such a kingdom. We need to understand that. We're receiving something that is not going to pass away. I love the words of 1 Peter chapter 1. 3 through 5, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope, a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance, listen to this, this is really good, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away. Reserved in heaven for you who are kept. I love this about God. Kept by the power of God through faith. That's what we've been talking about in Hebrews. Through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. See, for those in Christ Jesus, we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. So therefore, we're called in the text, we're exhorted in the text, let us have grace. Now we know Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we are saved by grace, right? We're saved by grace through faith. But here in the text, the text is exhorting us in light of being a recipient of a kingdom which cannot be shaken to let us have grace. You know, if you just flip one page over in your Bible into James chapter 4, we learn a little bit more about grace. And, and in James chapter 4, he says that God gives more grace. Therefore, he says, and gives us a, a line here, and says, God resists the proud, but gives grace. He gives grace to the humble. In light of receiving an unshakable kingdom, something we definitely don't deserve... We're exhorted to have grace. And God pours out his grace in our lives, the Bible says, as we humble ourselves in his sight, aligning our will to his in all things. When we choose to act pridefully instead of humbly, here's what happens. We are blocking the grace God has available. He resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Jesus says it this way in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. 
The lowly in spirit are deemed blessed. They are the recipients of God's kingdom. And the grace spoken of is needful, for it's the means by which we serve God acceptably. I want you to think about something here. Think about the Jewish audience to whom the writer is writing. They'd grown up in the sacrificial system. Serving God acceptably in the first covenant was predicated on the blood of bulls and goats. Serving God acceptably was rooted in the laws and ordinances of Judaism. Serving God acceptably was dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's. Serving God acceptably, says the writer, comes by way of grace. And notice what it is to serve God acceptably. It's to serve Him with reverence, with caution, with discretion, with another rendering would be pious care. Careful! We're careful about how we do this. It's to serve Him with godly fear. Deos is the word. It's not some cringing apprehension, but of One writer says, a a wholesome regard for a holy God and his standards and requirements, which if a person violates, he must suffer the consequences. Godly fear is an understanding that if I don't listen to what he has to say, if I do choose to refuse his word, if I walk in disobedience, I understand because of who he is, there are ramifications for my disobedience. That's godly fear. Consider the folly of being saved by grace, but desiring to live all the time in the flesh. See to it that you refuse not him who speaks. To refuse him is to spurn his grace. Pride blocks the channel through which grace flows. We're being exhorted to have grace, to live as a thankful person, operating with gratitude in light of the fact that we are recipients of an unshakable kingdom. Keeping in mind what God has provided for His children through His Son, let us have grace that we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. And then we get to Hebrews 12, 29. For our God is a consuming fire. That's the conclusion of the matter here this morning. Our God is a a consuming fire. To refuse him who speaks is to refuse the God who is a consuming fire. Think about it. Deuteronomy 4, verse 24, says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Deuteronomy 9, verse 3, says, Therefore understand today that the Lord your God is he who goes over before you as a consuming fire. Expositors give some further information, feedback on this particular verse in 29. 
It says the fire and the smoke which manifested his presence at Sinai, looking at verse 18, were but symbols of that consuming holiness that destroys all persistent, inexcusable evil. It is God himself who is the fire with which you have to do. Not a mere physical, material, quenchable fire. Can't put God out. God is the consuming fire. The way to serve God acceptably is through humility, gratitude, thanksgiving, grace. We cannot escape the judgment of God if we choose to refuse Him who speaks. If we choose to refuse Him who speaks, we are opting then to spend our days investing in fool's gold. Something that's not going to last. Something that's going to be removed. And third, he concludes here in verse 29 by pointing to God's character and nature. To refuse Him who speaks is to ignore the warning signs of who God is. As an example, if I was to have outside the building here a fire pit and I built up this nice, large, blazing fire and then I invited you to walk in the fire, you'd probably think I'd lost it. I'm going out on a limb here to say that you wouldn't accept the invite to walk through the raging fire. Why would anyone care to subject themselves to a blazing fire? Why would anyone desire to subject themselves to God who himself is fire, a consuming fire? Nahum chapter 1 Verse 2 and 6, God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. You're not going to escape. And then he goes on and he asks these questions. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the fierceness of his anger? Those are rhetorical questions, by the way. No one can. His fury is poured out like fire. As frightening as that is, the Bible also tells us some wonderful news. The end of verse 10, Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul speaks of Jesus who, listen, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is good news. God is a consuming fire, yes. A God of wrath, yes. But Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. Romans 5, 9 says, Now having been justified by the blood of Jesus, we shall be saved from wrath. Through Christ. That's how we're saved from his wrath. Through Jesus. 
That's why it's important that you listen to Jesus. That you get this right before the clock hits zero. And there's not a one of us that know when in our life that clock's going to hit zero. Refuse to listen to him who speaks. Know that you are refusing the God of wrath. Yes, he's a God of love. Yes, he's a God of grace. Yes, a God of mercy, a God of holiness. But he's also a God of wrath. And refusal to hear his voice is a refusal to be delivered from God's wrath to come. Can you stand before his indignation? Can you, on your own, endure the fierceness of his anger? Are you at liberty to cancel God's reservation of wrath upon his enemies? Jesus is the only one who delivers from God's wrath to come. Acts 4.12, no other name by which we must be saved. Don't continue your habit any longer of waving off God's signal. God's given you his word. The clock is ticking. The buzzer is about to sound. Judgment awaits. The hourglass of sand is going to run out at some point. When it does, judgment comes. In his book, Our God is Awesome, Tony Evans shares the illustration of the tombstone in an old cemetery. And it reads, Pause, stranger, when you pass by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. So prepare for death and follow me. So someone comes by and reads the inscription, picks up some chalk, and writes these words beneath. Quote, To follow you, I am not content until I know which way you went. Whose voice are you going to follow in these days ahead? Are you content following the types and the shadows when God has given to you the real thing in Jesus Christ? The substance of the old things is found in Christ alone. MacArthur says, for every man the choice is the same. Whether we are a Jew or a Gentile, to try to approach God by our works is to come to Sinai and to discover that our works fall short and cannot save us. Whether we are a Jew or a Gentile, to trust in the atoning blood of Jesus Christ is to come to Zion, where our heavenly high priest will mediate for us and bring us to the Father, and where we find reconciliation, peace, and eternal life. And if you have truly come to Zion and received all its blessings, it is inconceivable that you would want to hold on to Sinai in any way. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. The text sets before us, each one, a clear message. Do not turn away from the one who is speaking. 
to do so would be a refusal of eternal proportions. To refuse is to disobey. To refuse, know that you will not escape his judgment. To refuse, know that you are choosing fool's gold rather than a sure thing. To refuse is to find yourself confronted with a consuming fire named God. Friends, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. And family and friends who've been refusing, I'm sure if we took the time, you would raise your hand and be able to tell the story that you've got a family member or an extended family member who's been refusing. Exhort them, warn them, pray for them. Clock is ticking and the time is short. And there's a race of faith that we're called to run. We're run looking unto Jesus, considering much of Jesus. We're to run all the while listening to what Jesus has to say. Do not refuse him who speaks. Amen? Do not refuse. Him who speaks. Let's pray. Father, as a church, I pray we would obey, not disobey what you've spoken. That we would realize that when you're speaking, you have something to say. That when you're speaking, we are reminded of who you are, that you're God. That you're the the potter and that we're the clay. That we respond to your initiative. We respond to you speaking. We don't wave you off. Father, thank you for the word. A sobering word. An urgent word. A most necessary word. Thank you for revealing all of your truth. Thank you for showing us that you are a God, yes, of love and of mercy and holiness but a God also of wrath. We thank you for that unshakable kingdom that we are recipients of if we are in Christ Jesus. We thank you for the truth that we will abide with you forever in this kingdom. We look forward to that. And in the meantime, prepare us even now for the eternal things that are going to remain. May we spend our days preparing ourselves for eternity and not for things that are going to ultimately be removed. Thank you, Father, for your good word. In Jesus' name, amen.